The Fake Show podcast is sponsored by the law firm of Hutchison & Stephan, North Fifth Brewing Company, Threads of Envy, The Tone Factory Recording Studios, Moonshot.com t-shirt designs, and by Mr. Antenna. Now your host, Jim Tofty. I really enjoy talking to knowledgeable music people, and it doesn't get any better than our next guest, Jeff Gold. Gold is the former executive vice president and general manager of Warner Brothers Records, where he worked with Prince, R.E.M., and Madonna. Gold was also the VP in marketing at A&M Records, where he worked with The Police, Cat Stevens, and Janet Jackson. These days, Jeff is a music historian and collector and is one of the top collectors in the world. He runs a website called recordmecca.com, and he's written a book called 101 Essential Rock Records, and he joins joins me now from Los Angeles. Jeff, welcome to The Fake Show. It is so great to talk to you. As a record collector, I especially like what you say about how collections aren't just about accumulating. If you're not going to play it, then don't own it. Yeah, I feel that way. And when I got married, my wife said, why don't you just set the space on a mount of records? I thought, okay, that sounds fair. So they won't overwhelm the house. And I don't cheat too much. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen your collection. I've seen photographs of it. How many records do you think you own at this point? Well, you know, I probably have in my own collection about 2,500 albums. And uh, you know, then I've got my, quote, inventory for my business, Record Mecca, which is another, you know, thousand or two. Right. And sometimes I decide to import one of those into my own collection. So it's fluid. Do you remember the first uh, 45 or album that you got as a kid? Vividly, my uh, parents came back from Palm Springs. They would always bring us a gift, and they went on a little trip, and they brought me a 45 of I Want to Hold Your Hand by the Beatles. And it was about a month before they were on the Ed Sullivan Show, and I'd never heard of them, but they read about them in Time magazine. And uh, I just flipped out on that record, and so I was ready to go when they were on Ed Sullivan. And it's so important, I think, to have parents or a parent or older siblings who really kind of have a little bit of a collection. I My parents had one of those huge council stereos, and my dad's collection had everything from Sinatra to Miles Davis, and then the poppier stuff like Herb Albert and the Fifth Dimension and all that stuff. Yeah, pre-Beatles, I was really into Herb Albert. My parents had those records, and I loved them and played them constantly, and ironically, many years later, I went to work for A&M and spent an enormous amount of time with Herb, and he was fantastic, and so it's a really great full circle. You know, I remember as a kid taking road trips with friends to go to record conventions. It was very exciting because you were exposed to a lot of stuff that you hadn't seen before, and I imagine that you in the Los Angeles area must have had your pick. It was paradise. There were fantastic used record stores. I worked at the best one, Rhino Records. I was the first employee in 1973. Wow. And there was the best record flea market that I'd ever been to. Other than the New York one now, it was the best of the best. And it was in the Capitol Records parking lot. And I used to sell there and buy there. And it was just fantastic. And so how did you transition then into the music business? How did you uh, start? Well, I was going to high school when I started working at Rhino, and then I went to college, and I wanted to be in the music business. So I got a marketing degree, and I uh, was working at Rhino the whole time, decided I wanted to find a job in the record business. And unfortunately, I graduated from college in 1979 when the record business became a huge post-Fleetwood Mac rumors dip. So when I was looking for a job, nobody was hiring but a customer of ours introduced me to a friend of his named Jeff Merrill, who I even saw yesterday. 
who was the head of creative services at A&M Records. And I went and saw Jeff, and he liked me. And he couldn't hire me, but he gave me projects to work on. And uh, every month or two, he'd say, all right, send me a bill for $500. And that eventually transitioned into a job once uh, they were hiring again. And uh, I got the job that Jeff had had, which was being the assistant to the president of A&M, which was an incredible job because I was in the middle of everything. I recall A&M having a pretty good uh, stable of performers, not the least of which was the uh, police at the time. Exactly. That was totally the heyday of the police. And uh, that was fantastic. Really fun. We had six who were, not my case, huge, and 38 specials who were huge. And, uh, Did you see any of the fighting between Sting and Stuart Copeland? <laughs> no, not no. at all. I wasn't really uh, aware of it, but... Uh, I have been since, and I'm friendly with Andy Summers and saw his movie recently. There's a documentary on him recently that talks a lot about the insight history, which wasn't, we weren't privy to. Yeah. <laughs> well, so then you uh, you jump, when did you jump over to Warner Brothers Records? Uh, I worked at A&M from 1981 to 1990. Warner Brothers was, sorry, A&M was sold to Polygram. Uh, it was a regime change, as they say. And uh, I went to work for Mo Austin at Warner Brothers, who was another one of my heroes. So I worked there from 1990 through 1998. And worked your way up to VP and general manager of Warner Brothers Records. Yeah, executive vice president and general manager. So you are working with a pretty much a who's who at that point. I mean, you had Prince and Madonna and the Chili Peppers, and you're overseeing the Hendrix catalog, and I know that you've got an affinity for Hendrix. What did that entail to, to oversee the Hendrix catalog? Well, at the time, Alan Douglas was the person in the Hendrix estate who was putting things together. He was a very controversial figure at best in terms of overdubbing guitar and bass parts on Hendrix records and taking off the original tracks and things like that. And so I was the interface with Alan, and I would try to exert as much fan influence as I could to get him to do what I thought was the kind of best moral and artistic way of doing things. And I can't say I had a tremendous amount of influence, but I did have some. Well, I remember just starting to hear about Hendrix again. You know, they were they were reissuing things and, and thinking it was great. And I started to pick up a lot of stuff that I hadn't previously owned before. Yeah, I mean, you know, we did a lot of live albums and there's a package called Lifelines that was a kind of audio biography with a lot of unreleased material. You know, it was kind of a mixed blessing because I was a purist fan and would have done things vastly differently. But rather than being in charge, I was kind of trying to do my best to mitigate bad decisions. You know, I find it interesting that as a collector, you actually own the records that once belonged to Jimi Hendrix. How did you acquire those? How did that come about? In about 2000 or 2001, there was an auction in England entirely devoted to Jimi Hendrix. Uh, stuff. And I had a huge Jimi Hendrix collection, probably the biggest Jimi Hendrix record collection in the world, which I donated to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame when my younger daughter was born so she could have a room to live in instead of a room for my Hendrix collection to live in. That was actually their first uh, donation. And, and it was years from being built. Uh, it was a concept at that point. 
so when that Hendrix auction, uh, when I heard about that catalog, it was in London, and I went through and decided what I wanted to bid on. And the thing I wanted most was there were about 25 records from Jimi Hendrix's record collection. And being a record collector, that was the most enticing thing to me, to own records that actually Hendrix had owned and influenced it. Anything unusual in that collection? Well, you know, it was what you would expect, everything from Roland Kirk records to Howlin' Wolf, Muddy Waters. Um, But the really most fascinating thing is there was a record by a Norwegian psychedelic band that included uh, a jazz guitarist named Terry Griepdahl, who later surfaced on ECM Records, a, a respected jazz label. In 1967, his band called The Deep had made this psychedelic record. They had a song that was a tribute to Hendrix called Hey Jimmy. And that record alone is about a $2,000 psychedelic collectible record. And I bought the whole collection for less than that. I guess nobody picked up on what it was. And, uh, you know, I had to middle of the night to bid. And, And, you know, I'm assuming that that's one of those uh, collections that you would never part with. Not until I am old and infirm. Yeah. It's it's one of my treasured possessions. Is Electric Ladyland, is that your favorite? That's my favorite record of all time by anybody. I recently bought some Mitch Mitchell's gold records, including his gold record for Electric Ladyland, he being the drummer in the Hendrix Experience, and I've got that hanging on my wall proudly upstairs. How do you organize your collection? Because everyone's different in the way that they do that. You're right. Um, I have my rock records alphabetical, followed by my jazz records alphabetical, my blues records alphabetical, and then everything else alphabetical. And uh, everybody does have their own formula, And I've just got it in a way I've been doing it since I had very few records, and it works for me. It's kind of interesting how, uh, I think it was you who said this in in a past interview, that you can't always uh, judge a record by its cover. In other words, sometimes the artwork doesn't live up to the music. And I can give you my own example of that. We had Mike Love uh, in our studio one day. He talked about, you know, that retreat that he took with the Beatles and Mia Farrow and all the rest. And Mike was, he said, I was lucky enough to have breakfast with Paul McCartney one morning. And Paul said to me, we love your music, but your album covers suck. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was great. Only yesterday somebody was commenting to me how bad the Pet Sounds album cover is. And I'm used to it, and I like it. Yeah. Been in my life for so many decades. You know, I hear so much about that album, and when I saw the original cover, I thought, what the hell is this? Well, and the same for me, and by the way, that is my favorite album, and you're right, that image, that album cover is ingrained, it's just been there for so many years. somehow. Yeah, and a lot of bands in the 60s, it seemed like, Jeff, just, they really didn't care about the album artwork, yes? Yes, or weren't in charge of it. Even Electric Ladyland, I used to own a long letter from Hendrix to the Warner Brothers Art Department telling them what he wanted the cover of Electric Ladyland to look like, and they paid about 25% attention. They just went and did what they did. And Hendrix was on the road, and there wasn't anything he could do about it. And, And Electric Ladyland in England had a cover with a group of nude women, and Hendrix had nothing to do with that and hated it publicly. So in my era, artists were extremely involved in what their album cover was. You know, I probably art directed 50 album covers. You know, people could drive you crazy changing things that you knew no one would ever notice. But in the 60s, artists either didn't have time to get involved 
or the record companies just slapped whatever they thought on it. It was rare that an artist had complete say-so over it. You actually won a Grammy for Art Direction. I did for a Suzanne Vega album called Days in Open Hand. When I consider your book, 101 Essential Rock Records, really the Bible, it's awesome. And it's awesome because these aren't just the well-known, but also the obscure who influenced a lot of different bands. Well, thank you. Those are very kind words. And I tried to pick records that weren't just hits, but records that were influential and groundbreaking. The Beatles albums, many of which were themed, that kind of started the explosion in, in album sales. Yeah. The Beatles very much did. Uh, prior to the Beatles, people were buying 45s. Kids were buying 45s. Albums were expensive. But and, and I participated in this. The Beatles got so big so quickly, and Capitol was actually cannibalizing their records. So on each album, they'd take a couple of songs off so they could put out an extra album every four or five. And uh, I was buying them all. I was crazy about the Beatles, and everybody else was in America and around the world, they really started kicked album buying into a huge phenomenon. And that's why I started my book with them. It was kind of a logical start point. I find it interesting, too, that you, in the book, you interview several artists about their inspirations. And Graham Nash, in particular, talked about meeting the Beatles all the way back to uh, 1959. Yeah, I was really fortunate to work with a lot of artists. Uh, in my record business days. And so I thought, instead of it just being me pontificating about these records, I'd contact some of the artists I knew and interview them about records that changed their lives and were deeply meaningful. And Graham had an unbelievably unique perch. His band, The Hollies, were contemporaries of the Beatles, were signed to the same label, Parlophone, just after the Beatles were signed, played the same circuit, and they knew each other. So I thought having him talk about... He, it was interesting. Everybody else I asked talk about whatever record inspired them. Graham was the only person I asked to talk about something specific. And I asked him to talk about the first Beatles album because he was there. I asked him to talk about Joni Mitchell's Blue because it was her post-breakup with Graham Nash album and some of the songs were about him. And so I thought both those records were on my list and he could provide a totally unique point of view on them. You talk about a guy who was there in a Forrest Gump kind of way for, for several things, iconic things that happened during the 60s. And, he, you know, he's uh, a great guy. I can't recommend his recent autobiography enough. And he was there and has great recall and is a very uh, good storyteller. So I was incredibly lucky to get him to agree to participate. Jeff, you also include a pictorial survey on uh, the album covers, and you were talking about the Hendrix album a little bit ago with the nude cover. But the censored album covers, the one that comes to mind for me, I think, and a lot of people is the Beatles Butcher cover. What other ones are there that that you talk about in the book? I've been intrigued for many years with albums and album covers, obviously, and I thought it would be fun to do a kind of survey of rock album covers that had been censored for one reason or another. And I'd start off with the first Mamas and the Papas album, if you can believe your eyes and ears, which, crazily enough, has a picture of the Mamas and Papas in a bathtub, and next to it is a toilet. And retailers went crazy because there was a toilet on the album cover. <laughs> and so they had to put a big... Uh, rectangle over it with some song titles to cover up the toilet. That, to me, shows how far we've uh, 
uh, come culturally. <laughs> Today would be no problem to have a toilet on an album. You know, it's so funny that you mention that, Jeff, because I, I recently interviewed Jerry Mathers, who played uh, Beaver Cleaver, and he was talking about how one particular episode of that show was practically censored because they showed the bathroom. I don't even, I think they showed the top of the toilet and maybe the bathtub, and it was just shocking to the censors. Unbelievable. I know. <laughs> <laughs> what a great show that is, too. Yeah. I also have the Beatles Yesterday and Today album, which is probably the most famous censored album cover, which shows the Beatles in uh, butcher's slocks with dismembered dolls and meat, raw meat. And, and what I do is I picture the censored one, uh, the original album cover that's censored one next to it. Uh, I have Jimmy Anderson's Electric Ladyland, which we've talked about. I have John Lennon and Yoko Ono's album, Two Virgins, where they're full frontal nudity on the front and was sold in a brown paper bag. Right. The original Blind Faith album, which has a 14-year-old naked girl. I guess the nudity is uh, uh, coming up often. And actually, I have the Rolling Stones' Beggar's Banquet, which originally was going to have a toilet in a really funky bathroom with a lot of graffiti. And the head of Decca Records in England said, no way. David Bowie's Diamond Dogs, Leonard Skinner's Street Survivors, which pictures the band surrounded by flames and unfortunately came out a few months before they were killed, airplane crash. So that was censored for good taste rather than Korean interest. Wasn't the Beatles uh, butcher cover, wasn't that one, the way that they fixed that was to literally to glue the new cover over the top of that? Exactly what they did. They had made hundreds of thousands of them, and so instead of throwing them away, they just printed a very innocuous pictures of the Beatles and a footlocker and uh, slapped those babies over the old covers. And people have perfected many ingenious ways of removing the replacement cover and getting the butcher cover below with uh, varying degrees of success. But uh, depending on how good it looks, they can be worth a lot of money. And the ones that never were pasted over worth a lot of money. If you could uh, indulge me, I'd like to uh, look at maybe a handful of uh, some of the bands, some of the albums that are on your list of, of 101. Fleetwood Mac's Rumors, I don't know where it ranks in terms of the best-selling album of all time, but you've got that at number 97. What is the reason for it being down there? I can explain that very easily. The entire book is chronological. So... <laughs> The 97th out of 100 records that I covered by release date. Wow, interesting. Yeah, I didn't want to get into rating records, but pick ones that I thought were important. The challenge with a book like this is not making it 500 pages long, and uh, having because of that, you've got to make some hard decisions about what goes in and out and when it begins and ends. So I decided I was going to start with the first Beatles album in England, Please Please Me. Yeah. And I was going to end with the first Sex Pistols album, Never Mind the Bullocks. And the reason for that is it was obviously a very revolutionary record, kicked off punk rock, came out in 1977, and the next year Sony introduced The Walkman. And The Walkman was the beginning of the end for vinyl. Right. In a year or two, cassette sales had overtaken vinyl sales. So I start with The Beatles, who kicked off vinyl sales. I end with The Sex Pistols, who, by coincidence, started not just a new revolutionary music form, but presaged the end of vinyl. Well, you must get that question asked quite a bit in terms of the ranking, and I think that's genius because people get so upset when you come up with a list like this and they disagree with it. I knew people would get upset. <laughs> I want to rank the records for that reason, and I have a place on the website for the book, which is 301essentialrecords.com, where people can argue with me and post their own list. That's incredible. 
you know, I and and the, one of the first things I say in the book is this is my list, not the list. Yeah, although I, I have to say I agree with uh, most of it in terms of uh, being influential. And numbers aside, Iggy and the Stooges' Raw Power, that is one that I go back to a lot. It's a great record, and actually my next book is on the Stooges, and I've done an eight-hour interview with Iggy who remembers more than any artist I've ever met uh, about his history. It's really incredible. So look for that in a year or so. Excellent. You've got the Yes album in there, which is great. We just uh, went to one of the last concerts that uh, Chris Squire played played at, and he's certainly one of the most influential bass players ever. You know, I was a big fan of his, and in the 70s, I went to a party for the band The Pretty Things, who were then on Led Zeppelin's Swan Song label. And I was standing around at this party, and I turned around, and Chris Squire was staring me in the face, though he was probably a head taller than me, and I blurted out, Chris Squire, oh my God, he <laughs> in the sin, uh, because I'm a big fan of his psychedelic band The Sin, and he goes, who told you to say that? <laughs> Nobody but Big Fan of the Sin. He goes, oh, come on. Somebody put you up to that. Absolutely Your singles were created by Clive and Flower Man, and he goes, wow. And so I had a nice little chat with him about that. He was very nice. That's fantastic. Um, Sly and the Family Stones, Stand. I can't think of an album that was more influential in terms of uh, bands that were that kind of had that funk rock type of feel to him. I know Prince always looks to the to Sly constantly. Absolutely, Sly and Venom Funk, no question about it. I was very happy to see on this uh, list because they're one of my favorites. And this album in particular, the Zombies, the Odyssey, and the Oracle. I think it's just a brilliant album that somehow just got lost in the shuffle. Don't you think? Yes, it's it's absolutely true. And what happened was the band broke up right after they. So they weren't around to tour and promote it. And uh, the time of the season came ahead and they got back together really quickly, but it was a less than ideal situation. And ironically, this year the zombies are touring, playing that album, The Reconstituted Zombies. And that's a, a really collectible record. An original English copy of that in mint condition goes for $1,000. And does the English copy, does it look different or, or are there different things on it? No, it looks the same, but people collect, and that's an interesting thing. Collectors uh, pay a premium for first pressing copies from the artist's country of origin. So if you're a collector, you want an English zombies record, but you want an American Mamas and Papas record or a Moby Grape record. And England, you know, in the case of Odyssey and Oracle, it's got a nice laminated album cover as they made in England, and it's a much higher quality pressing than the American one. But it's more about just having the record that came out in the artist's country where they, the country they were from, and they recorded it. Another band that's kind of unusual that I like a lot is the 13th Floor Elevator, Psychedelic Sounds, is on the list. And they hit it big, and they hit it big fast, and then lead singer Rocky Erickson just kind of flamed out. They recorded Rocky's comeback single for Rhino when I worked there um, and spent a lot of time with him. That's a really influential album. It's the first album with Psychedelic in the title. It's... Uh, Boy, talk about an album whose album cover matches the record. Uh, yeah. Google that one. Yeah, that, that big eye. Yeah, I listened to that record about two days ago, and it still blows me away. And nobody made a record like that. Yeah, I remember hearing it for the first time, and it wasn't all that long ago. It was probably about 15, 20 years ago, and I had no idea who it was. I just couldn't believe that I had never heard it before. But then when I found out more about the history of the band, it made sense. Yeah, they were not functioning, but they were extremely innovative. I mean, the, to have Electric Jug be one of the lead instruments 
Yes. I know. I saw a clip on where the action is with Dick Clark. It just was so out of place because those guys were pretty hardcore. They were pretty hardcore, and they recently actually reunited and played a show in Texas, and you can see some of it on YouTube, and it was much better than I expected it to possibly be. Yeah, I know that Rocky has been hitting a couple of festivals here and there, so he must somewhat have his act together again. Yeah, he does, and he's got a good support crew. You know, when you get up to the top of the list, I know you talk about the Beatles' Please Please Me being there because it's so influential to just about every band ever, and the freewheeling Bob Dylan is one that I go back to a lot as well. Very important record. His second album, but the first one where he wrote virtually all the songs, and uh, stands up incredibly well as far as I'm concerned. You've got the book. You've got Record Mecca. I encourage people People to go to recordmecca.com if you're a collector because there's so much great stuff there. But the book, 101 Essential Rock Records, I can't think of a better present for someone. And, and by the way, I think should really be a textbook in uh, music appreciation classes. Well, that's very kind of you. Thanks so much. And I can't thank you enough, Jeff, for spending time with me. You're much more important than someone who should be on my show. <laughs> all right buddy great to talk to you jeff Bye bye. yeah jeff's record mecca.com has sold music artifacts as he said to the rock and roll hall of fame and the smithsonian you could spend all day just looking around on that site and when his book was first published rolling stone called it the year's best reading material and i totally agree with that and i love that the list in the 101 book is strictly chronological well that's it for this chapter of the fake show i hope you enjoyed please like us on your facebook and twitter pages i'm jim tofty and i'll see you next time. Listen to The Fake Show anywhere on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and thefakeshow.com.